so much, Father, for the reality of the cross and that road to Calvary that was walked by your Son, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf. Thank you for his willingness to fulfill your will. Thank you for the way he took our sin upon himself. And thank you for the free gift of your great salvation in Christ today. And thank you, Father, that uh, you walk with us now today in newness of life. And so, Father, today we ask for strength and your sustaining power as we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And now as we open our Bibles and, and we study and we look in to your word, please teach us, strengthen us, uh, help us to have surrendered lives that we live in Christ and bring no shame to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray with thanksgiving today, committing ourselves to the hearing and the doing of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is Father's Day, and I was thinking about what the ideal man does when he has his own time. And I'm picturing Dad with his man cave and his big screen TV and his surround sound and he's of course got the clicker in his hand and uh, as you turn to Genesis chapter 13 and 14 uh, let's picture dad down there in front of the big screen and this time of year of course there's not much for sports Uh, the NBA's wrapped up hockey's wrapped up baseball still has about 497 games left in their schedule before anything means anything and um Real men don't watch soccer, and uh, I can say that because I played soccer, and I love soccer. And so you're channel surfing, and what are you going to watch? I know what you're going to do. You're going to stop at the History Channel, aren't you? Especially if it's one of those battle, uh, World War II, you know, battle overviews, and they're showing you all the movements and how they did this, and... And, uh, man, it's interesting. Hard to get past the History Channel, isn't it? But you did see that they were playing reruns of Ponderosa, right? The old Ponderosa Bonanza. Ben Cartwright and his boys. Remember that one? That's a good man show, isn't it? And, well, you came to the right church on the right morning because if you like the History Channel and battle review programming, and if you like Ben Cartwright and... Remember on that show, didn't he almost always in the plot, one of his boys would be in trouble, right? And they would find out that he was in town about ready to get busted up by the bad guys. And old Ben Cartwright would round up the other boys and get on their horses and they'd have to ride over and stand up for the other brother, right? Well, we've got all of that in Genesis chapter 13 and 14. And you're saying, wait a minute, I didn't know that Ben Cartwright was in my Bible. Well, he's really not, but it's sort of like that, all right? And so, happy Father's Day to you men. Uh, I want to encourage you and strengthen you today through the Word of God, through the model that we have this morning in the life of this man, Abram, and how God has been at work in his life. And he's already messed up, hasn't he? And don't we mess up, dads, right? But by God's grace, he's come back up out of Egypt. He's now walking with God. He's worshiping God. And he's got uh, his nephew, Lot, as you know if you've been with us in our Genesis series. And Lot and his uh, growing uh, strength of wealth and um, prosperity has created a conflict with Uncle Abram. Lot is Abram's brother's boy. His brother has passed away, and Lot has been with Abram essentially all of his life. 
And here they are now having conflict, and we've talked about that. And Abram has set up this proposition that Lot can choose which way he wants to go. And we're not given the in-between-the-line details, but I really believe from the consequence of his decision-making, and don't decisions have consequence. If you're a younger person here today, I hope you will see in the text today and in the story that way down the road, decisions are made that someday will come back to follow you around. And you say, why am I here? And the reason you're here is because of decisions that were made. And if those decisions are negative, the results of that can sometimes never go away. And uh, Satan will use it to to defeat you and destroy you. And so Lot makes a decision, and it ends up being quite a selfish decision. And he takes the whole plain of Jordan. Remember that? In fact, that's where I want to begin in our text this morning, chapter 13, verse 10. We have a lot to read, and I'm warning you that don't like the History Channel and the battle reviews. You're going to get a big chunk of history and a bunch of hard names and a battle review of what's happening here. What you have to keep in mind is to to kind of stay with me. I'll try to make it make sense to you. Um, And it's kind of interesting, actually. But also remember that there's going to be a story within the story this morning. All right. So let's jump in. Let's read the text and let it speak for itself and remind ourselves of where Lot is when we left him off. He is departed from Uncle Abram. But to get to that point, chapter 13, verse 10, I'm reading from the New International Version. Listen along or follow along in your copy of God's word, will you please? So Lot looked up and he saw that the whole plain of Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zor. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and he set out toward the east. And now a very sad sentence. And the two men parted company. You see, Abram's the one who told Lot to make the decision, but I think that Lot makes a big mistake. And I think in that phrase alone is a clue that he's basically shoving his hand in his uncle Abram's face saying, I don't need you anymore. I'm a man. I'm on my own. And he goes the way that reminded him of Egypt, the way outside of the will of God. Now, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, Excuse me, verse 12. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and, notice, pitched his tents toward Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Abram leaves and departs. Excuse me, Lot leaves and departs. Now, almost immediately, God reminds Abram of how he's going to bless him. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you, give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And so Abram moved his tents And he went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And so we see that Abram is back from Egypt and worshiping the Lord. He's reinstalled in fellowship and communion with the Lord. He's now in the land of Canaan that God is giving him. 
And God is reminding him of a promise that we first heard at the beginning of chapter 12. We're going to hear this again, and it's in more detail even in chapter 15, coming up in the weeks ahead. And so I'm waiting for that to really look, we'll reflect back upon what God is saying to Abram. There are ramifications here for the geopolitical world even to this day, for this covenantal promise that God makes to Abram. It still stands today. There are still ramifications, and we'll look at that. And God is blessing Abram. So Lot, on his own strength, racing off to try to take the best land, the best water, to build himself a kingdom. And Abram, in the more dry ground, ends up being the land of Canaan that God wanted him therein to begin with. And then God says, Abram... And I think part of the reason that Moses records this in this order is that there had to be a letdown. There had to be something in Uncle Uncle Abram as Lot turned and he sees Lot's entourage leave and Uncle Abram turns and maybe his shoulders just sag, kind of like an adult child that has left your home on negative terms and you're like, Lord, I did my best. What was I supposed to do? We couldn't get along. And then God says, Abram, Abram, listen. I'm going to bless you. Look to the north, look to the south, the east, the west. It's all yours. I've just begun to bless you. And then we enter the historical battle part of the story. Some time evidently goes by from the end of chapter 13 to the beginning of chapter 14. And it's going to get a little technical here and hard names. I can't pronounce them either, but I'm responsible for reading them today. And so you follow along and I'll try to show you what's happening now at this phase of our story. So Lot is gone. Abram is living in memory. He's worshiping the Lord. He's walking with God. And now we have more details. And at this time, 14.1, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketolomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shineb, king of Adma, Shemibar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. Okay, all these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, the Salt Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to Ketolomor or Lamor, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Let's stop there and let me explain to you what I just read. I wasn't talking in tongues. Forgive me for slaughtering the names. And uh, if you think you can do better, we'll call on you to do that. And probably Willem could back there, but we're already moving ahead here. All right. Okay, Uh, we're Americans, and so we're not really that concerned about how their names sound anyway, right? But um, it's important to them. Let Let me just show you what's happening here. Look at the very beginning of the passage. At this time, Aramphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Lelmor, that's K-E-D-O-R, and then the rest of his name in the NIV. In some of your Bibles, in the NAS, I think the New King James, his name starts with a C-H, Instead of a K, same guy, just a different way of spelling it, of Elam. And we notice down in verse 4, we see his name again, this Ketolomor or Chetolomor. He evidently is the king above the other four kings. So there's four kings that are mentioned in verse 1 that I'm struggling with their names. And title king of God. Let me tell you about them. The first guy, Amraphel, king of Shinar. This guy is from, just think of present day Iraq. All right, he's the king of present-day Iraq. 
All right? Arioch and the other guy, Tidal, the king of Gorm, those two guys are from present-day Turkey. And the other one, this, the one that is evidently over the others, this Ketalomar or Chetalomar, however you want to say his name, whether it starts with a K or a C-H, he's the king over what is present-day Iran. All right, so these are countries north and east of Israel where Abram and where Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And these four kings are big, powerful men and they have an alliance. Okay, so there's four kingdoms. All right, then it switches. Okay, look at the next verse. They went to war, verse 2, against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shineb, king of Adma, Shemibar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, all right? These, these kings had joined forces to do battle. There were four big, powerful northern kingdoms against these five smaller, what would be city-state kingdoms. Now, what you need to understand is that for 12 years, look at verse 4, for 12 years, they had been subject to this big king and his alliances, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see the story within the story and how this all pertains to, this, to our study is that Lot is no longer just has his tents pitched towards Sodom, but Lot is now living in Sodom. So he's part of a city-state. He's part of a community who has a king who now has decided to do something. You see, for 12 years they had been subject, but the 13th year they rebelled. It was something like this. It was like these powerful kingdoms, 12 years before, had come down and sent a, a negotiating party. And basically what they would say to these smaller places like Sodom, it's not a huge place. It had a king. Think of it as a city-state. Some part of its uh, community had a walled city. I don't know the extent of the size of these places, but they're not huge. But they had some impact upon their general area. So there's Sodom. And then a nearby city, city-state, Gomorrah. They each have a king. They each have their laws. They each know who they are. But they relate to each other as good neighbors, and they alliance together to try to stand up against enemies. However, 12 years before, these northern kingdoms, under this Ketamar guy, they had come down and probably just send a delegation. And they just sent the secretary of state or whoever, and they just said, look, guys, you're going to start paying us taxes or we're going to start bashing in your front store windows. You're going to pay up. You're just going to pay us. Or we're going to just come wipe you off the face of the map. And so the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, these city-states, got together, had a conference. What are we going to do? What do you mean what are we going to do? We're going to pay the tax. That's what we're going to do. Because we can't stand up against these strong guys. And so for 12 years, they had held them down and were subservient to these northern countries because they were under them because they were more powerful. But after 12 years, you know, things had kind of loosened up and, and the northern people had gotten fat and lazy and, and the southern kingdoms and these guys, Sodom and Gomorrah, had grown in strength a little bit. And they just decided, you know what? I'm sick of paying your Uncle Louis the money to keep my windows from being broken. It's, it's just, that's all it was, was just some kind of an extortion type deal. Said, let's not do it. All right, let's not do it. So Sodom and Gomorrah and these city-state kings get together, have a conference. Yeah, we're not going to pay the tax. All right, good. And so let's see what they do. And so these four kings of the north come down, but 
the next part of the passage kind of makes it even more confusing. Because notice, uh, let's read again, beginning with verse 4, going into verse 5. For 12 years they had been subject to Ketolomar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So then verse 5, in the 14th year, so it takes a couple years. They probably kept sending letters, you better pay up or we're going to get you. You know, we're going to get you. And so time is going by, and it's during this time that Lot has moved down into Sodom. He's growing in economic power and so forth. And so in the 14th year, Kedar Lomar and the kings allied with him went out. But then look who it says they defeated. They defeated a whole different set of kings. So if you're reading through the passage, it's like, wait a minute, you're not even talking about Sodom and Gomorrah yet. So let's read it and see what it says. They defeated the Raphaites in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavakuriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. And then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. All right? Now look at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidom, or Sidom, against Ketolomar, king of Elam, and he repeats all those other four kings who were in alliance from the north. You say, well, what's going on here? Well, let me try to explain it like this a little bit. We already understand that we've got the five city-state surf kingdoms. They're surf kingdoms because they have to pay taxes to the big four powerful countries, present-day Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. All right? After a couple years of bantering and saying, we're not going to pay up, they're they're finally putting their money where their mouth is, and they've sent their army down through, but they don't go direct to Sodom and Gomorrah and attack them and make them obey. What Moses has done, you see, Moses is the historian here. He's writing this probably, no doubt, at the time when the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And he's giving Israel an account of a couple things. He's giving them an account of their own history. And he's also recording for them the things that God has done for them. And so Moses, the historian in writing this, is giving some details about how this went down because you're going to notice in a few minutes how God blesses Abram when he goes in in, a, in, in sort of a Gideon and his 300 men kind of way and God gives him a great victory. So what he does is these kingdoms from the north, Moses takes time to explain that they don't go right to Sodom. They go to the part here in the Middle East and the part of Israel that is really the trade routes And he attacks all these other Amalekite-type ites that are there. And he gains control of that. Why did they do that? I think there's maybe three reasons, and the commentators suggest this, not, uh, not that I'm knowledgeable, but just in my own reading of this, it would appear that the reason they did this is they came down, number one, that while they sent their army down, they decided to secure the trade rate and trade route and make sure they controlled trade. Even today, that's a factor in the Middle East. And they fight over that. Secondly, they are going to get to Sodom and Gomorrah and these surf city-states that they're going to dominate and control. And they don't know, after 12 years, what kind of an alliance they've made with these other city-states. So they decide to just sweep in down below, come up, hook their way up and over, and conquer them, get the trade rate, and then protect the rear of their army while they take care of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's a part of a battle plan. And I think, thirdly, 
it's probably just a form of intimidation. You guys are supposed to pay up, and I think they're thinking, let's just go take care of that. We want to secure the trade route anyway, and we want to make sure if we do have to do battle, we don't have guys attacking us from the battle and, uh, from the backside so that we end up in a sandwich effect, getting crushed from both sides. And maybe by the time we're done with that, they'll realize we mean business, and Sodom and Gomorrah and them will just cave in, and it's all over. So they did it for intimidation. So now we're back at verse 8. So you got the idea of what's happened? Okay, it's all going on. Now at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and these kings gather, and finally they draw up their battle line. And Ketamorah in verse 9, and Tidal and these guys from Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, these four kings come down against the five kings. Immediately, it just goes to the retreat of Sodom and Gomorrah in their kingdoms. Notice verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills, to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. There's the story within the story, isn't it? You see what happened? You say, wait a minute, what happened to the battle? What happened to the the five kingdoms, the five city-states, Sodom, Gomorrah, and those guys that said, we're not paying you guys, and the four big kings come down, and these guys line up their battle. I don't know what they were thinking, whether they thought they might be able to negotiate something, whether they were just posturing, I don't know. But Moses records for us the fact that there evidently wasn't much of a battle, and when these guys from up northern part come through, Sodom and Gomorrah's guys just flee right away. And it's interesting, and even to this day, I understand that, that asphalt and oil can ooze right out of the ground in these tar pits. You've heard of these before where they get dinosaur bones out of them and things like that. And I thought when I first read this, I thought, now, isn't that interesting? You got limited space, the Word of God, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Why is he bothered to say, and when these guys fled, some of them fell head first into the tar pits? It's like, why didn't he say, and some guys tripped on the rocks, and a couple other guys tripped on roots? And these guys fell in the tar pits. But it was interesting in uh, Kent Hughes' commentary on Genesis, he, he was pointing back, clear back to John Calvin's commentary, where John Calvin believed that in this statement, it was they were so frightened and they were fleeing away from these wicked kings who had come to conquer them again and bring them into subservience again, that they were literally choosing the lesser of evils for their death. That as they ran away, fleeing from the army, knowing they were going to get butchered and slaughtered and killed in a horrible manner in the same way that they still kill over there today, these guys dove headfirst into the tar pits, literally committing suicide, choosing the lesser of deaths. That's how much disarray they were in. And in the middle of this chaos and utter uh, capitulation of these armies and losing everything was Lot nephew of Abram. Isn't that interesting? We then go on to see in verse 13 that one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. By the way, let me say this. This is the first time in Genesis that, the, that an Israelite, in essence, is called a Hebrew. And the Bible commentators don't really know why they even started using that word, but there it is, Abram, the Hebrew. All right? And you'll also, some people will point out um, in fact, that uh, some people who are paying close attention to historical detail, 
that there were no such thing, I think, as the Amalekites at that time. And also, when, when Lot and Abram lived, the Amalekites weren't around yet. And also, when he's going to talk about going in geographical places, clear to Dan, for example, a location that was not present at the time of Abram. And some people will point to that and say, what's going on here with this historical account? They're including people's names and geographical locations that didn't even exist at the time, historically, that Lot and Abram lived. Again, it goes back to Moses being a historian for his people many years after this, 400 years later, and by then, these people are established in the land. By then, there are these well-known geographical locations, and Moses is writing for the Hebrew children, the Israelites, and he's just using, in a similar way that I just did this morning, he, I talked about Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Well, those weren't in existence here either, but just so that we had a point of reference, those are the names I use, and they're easier to pronounce than these other places. And that's what Moses is doing. He's inserting historical detail that would make sense to the reader who would understand that the lay of the land at that time. So, back to 13. So, one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. So, Abram himself had an alliance with his neighbors, huge landowners, wealthy people with many servants, and they allied together just to protect themselves against these bands of marauders that would come from these city-states. And when Abram heard this, verse 14, that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. There's, there's an example of a geographical point that was not in existence at that time doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. It means that Moses inserted it on purpose. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them. Look at this. And he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Listen, Lot was in big trouble, wasn't he? What do you think he thinks about Uncle Abram right now? Uncle Abram, man, just in time. Just in time. Well, let's very quickly, as we wrap up, let's look at what we've looked at here. Let's see what we see in this passage real quickly. First of all, I want you to see what we've already read and broken down in the first part of the passage. Number one, we see the marked contrast, don't we, between Abram and Lot. The marked contrast. Let me just rattle this off. Notice... In the end of chapter 13, we have Lot doing what? Moving away from God's will. But we have, Lot, we, have Ab- we have Lot moving away from God's will. We have Abram living within God's will. What a contrast. We have Lot trying to benefit himself from selfishness and personal strategy. And we have Abram receiving purely from the favor and grace of God unmerited blessing. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. We see Lot in this passage, don't we? Always getting closer to the wicked. Always moving and embedding himself with the wicked. But we see Abram doing what? Getting closer to God and being a man of worship. So we see a contrast between these two men. We've seen a military campaign. Number two, we see a military campaign. 
verses 1 through 11 in chapter 14. We saw the detail of that, and I tried to explain that quickly. I hope that made sense. And thirdly, we see, don't we, the major consequence of Lot's decision-making, catching up with him. Uncle Abram, I don't need you. I'm as powerful as you are, and I can handle living down with the sinners. I can handle it. It's, nothing, it's just good business for me to live in Sodom. And the next thing you know, he's in, he's in a POW camp. He's ha- his wife, his children, all of his household are in disarray, in captivity, probably in ankle shackles being moved across the land. So we have a marked contrast between two men. One was worldly, one was godly. We have a military campaign that explains the background here. We have the major consequence of Lot's decision-making. But then we end the story with the midnight conquest of Abram, number four, the midnight conquest. That's pretty neat, isn't it? You know what came to my mind as soon as I first read this text? was Proverbs 28.1. Here's a good verse for you fathers here today and everyone, really. Proverbs 28.1. The righteous are bold as a lion. But the wicked flee when no one pursues. The righteous are bold as a lion. Where would Lot have been if he did not have a godly father figure in his life? Isn't that what dads do? They come along behind and clean up the mess, don't they? Oh, dad, I know what I'm doing. All right, son, I'll see you in the ER. But you get there, don't you? And there's Abram. It's kind of interesting, um, a note from out of the Hebrew grammar that Kent Hughes pointed out of his commentary on Genesis that I referenced earlier. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, this is the Ben Cartwright point of the story, by the way, if you were trying to figure that whole thing out. When Abram heard of his relative had been taken captive, he saddles up his horses and he calls out 318 trained men. That phrase in the NIV, he called out, in some of your Bibles, it might be, he led forth. In the Hebrew, it's the word, he drew out. It's a picture of a sword being drawn out of a scabbard. He drew it out. Think about what happened to Abram. Abram said, this isn't right. We're not standing for this. I don't know what's going to happen, but get the boys ready. And he, in a sense, draws out his sword. Fathers, what a great privilege is ours, isn't it? To be the protectors of our home and family. How important is it for us to be walking in godliness so that we protect our home spiritually as well as physically? I think every man here knows the stirring within that that would happen if your family and personal space are being molested. Doesn't that bring the warrior out of the man? How great is God's design to have dad watching over the house? How important is it to have a godly father's oversight? How fortunate Lot was to have an uncle like Abram who would take up for him in a time of need. And so, so Abram swells up and he rises up and he says, let's go. Then they have this midnight plan. He splits up his forces. We don't know the details. It evidently was something like what I referenced earlier and Gideon and his 300 men taking on 125,000, if I remember correctly, Midianites. You say, wait a minute, 300 men versus 125,000? 
That's right. Because what? Because God gave the victory. And that has been the story of God's children Israel over and over and over again. And I'll tell you something, as you watch the news, it's still true today. It's still true today. And so Abram goes and Moses records for the children of Israel the first time that overwhelming odds, that in the face of overwhelming odds, the God-fearing man conquered the wicked. As we conclude, I want to just back up now. I've been talking, I feel like I've been talking a mile a minute trying to make all this make sense. I hope you had ears to hear. You saw how it breaks down. The contrast between the two men, the marked contrast, the military campaign that went on, the major consequence that Lot suffered, and then the midnight conquest of his uncle Abram. Let's step back and let's make an application as we go. It'll only take a couple minutes. And I was thinking in this story, the History Channel, Ponderosa story here, that I think we see all from Lot. All of this is recorded because Lot walked out of the will of God. If Lot had stayed home with Abram, none of this would be written down. And I see in Lot, as I told you, we're going to continue to talk about him as a model and as an example of a man who is turning away from God and trying to be like the world. Let me just list for you out of this. Now step back and I think you'll see it clearly. Four marks of spiritual drift or spiritual decline. Four marks from the life of Lot about spiritual drift. How do I know if I'm turning away from walking with God and turning towards the world in the way of sinfulness? Number one, I know that I am drifting spiritually or I am on the downgrade spiritually. Number one, when I comfortably and confidently step away from the lifelong spiritual anchor points of my life. Let me say them all again. They're kind of long, but I think you'll see it. I know that I'm on spiritual downgrade when I confidently and comfortably step away from the lifelong spiritual anchor points of my life. Don't you see that in Lot? His entire life, his security and his safety has been found in Uncle Abram. And then the day came when he said, don't need any of that anymore. That's for old fogies. I'm young and tough. And he steps away from the lifelong spiritual anchor points of his life. And what does he do? He makes an utter mess out of his life. Secondly, I know I'm on the downgrade spiritually when I become incrementally calloused to the sinful culture around me. I know I'm on spiritual downgrade and I know I'm drifting spiritually. Number two, when I become incrementally calloused to the sinful culture around me. I pitch my tents toward Sodom when I'm Lot and the next thing you know, I'm living down in Sodom and the next thing you know, I'm in utter chaos along with the sinful world around me. Lot did not do that overnight. It took years for him to get from standing on that high point and looking down in the valley till he lived among them. Several years went by. He incrementally became calloused to the sinful culture around him. Nothing shocked him anymore. There was no shame. It all made such good business sense, didn't it? And it liked to ruin his life. Number three, I know that I'm on the downgrade and I'm drifting spiritually when I am beat up 
and bruised because of my choices and yet show little or no sign of spiritual renewal. I will say that again. I know that I am on the downgrade spiritually when I am beat up and bruised because of my choices and yet show little or no sign of spiritual renewal. Don't you see that in Lot? I mean, how utterly smashed up can you get than Lot in captivity? And yet, nowhere in the passage and in the pages to come will you see Lot trying to remove himself from the mess that he's made of his life. Nowhere in the passage do you see him go to Uncle Abram and say, thank you so much. I am so sorry that my sinful choices put your men and you in danger, put my wife, put my children in danger. I nearly lost everything God had given to me because of my choices. Listen, I see this, I want to say all the time. It's not all the time, but it's not uncommon for me to have people in my study, the tears rolling down their cheeks, and they just don't understand. Where's God? Why is all this happening to me? And sometimes I want to just scream. Look at your life. You have rejected your lifelong spiritual anchor points. You have been arrogant. You have been full of pride. You have chased after the world. You have made choice after choice after choice. And now you are beat up and bruised and you're going to sit there and wonder why God allowed that. What you need to do is get on your face and repent for all of the decisions that you've made that have allowed God to withhold his plan of blessing for your life. You brought it on yourself, Lot. There it is. And listen, if you're beat up and bruised from sin this morning and you're just trying to figure out why life is so unfair to you, you need to get somehow before the Lord, get in the Word or somehow and ask God to break your heart and take away the scales from your eyes and go look in the mirror and say, I can't keep doing the same things and expect different results. I have a life of choices and decision-making that has brought me here. I am not implying that there are not people who are victims of other people's sin. But I'm saying that so often we bring things on ourselves like Lot, and there is no sign of repentance when they do finally get beat up and bruised. Just get up and move back into Sodom. Get the business cranking again. Got to get up and go to work. Finally, kind of related to this is finally in number four. I know I'm on the downgrade and on the drift spiritually from Lot's example, number four, when I seem to have an inability to see that my personal life choices and God's lack of favor on my life are directly linked. It's kind of what I've just been saying in number three, but let's add it as a number four. I know I'm on the downgrade spiritually when I'm living my life And I seem to have no ability to see that my personal life choices and God's withholding his favor or lack of favor are directly linked. You follow me? Why isn't God blessing me? Because of my sinful, carnal, worldly, fleshly choices, period. Listen, Psalm 84, we won't take time to turn there, so it's time to go. Psalm 84 is such a good verse. We'll get to it eventually. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. And the Lord God will give grace and glory. And no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. 
Listen, that's not a, not a word for a prosperity gospel at all. It just has to, everything to do with the fact that the blessing of God is directly linked to our personal holiness and biblical obedience. And when I can't figure out why God's not blessing me, but I have a whole trail of sinful, carnal, worldly choices around me, I need to wake up and smell the coffee. Get a clue. Get a clue. A lot doesn't get it, and we're not through with them yet. It's actually going to get a lot worse for a lot. By the way, the title today is A Lot to Lose. You'll notice there's not a title in the bulletin. A Lot to Lose, and Lot had a lot to lose, didn't he? But I don't know that he learned his lesson. I wonder if we've learned our lesson today. I wonder where you are in your walk with the Lord and your desire to forage ahead of the Lord outside of his will, suffering the negative consequences of it. Let's bow in prayer, shall we please? In fact, with the hour, will you just stand with me and let's just close in prayer right now. But let's bow our heads humbly and take a moment to reflect. Before we spread out and head home and take care of dad and all we're going to do here. Can I remind you that we all have a lot to lose today? When we operate by the flesh, when we operate out of the will of God, when we line up a string of choices that lead us only to being beaten up and bruised, it's time for change in some of our lives, isn't it? It's time for repentance. It's time for grace and mercy. And what a beautiful picture Abram is of our Lord Jesus, isn't he? Lot, mingled in and beaten down with sinful men, needing rescued from a situation he could not unentangle himself from. And Abram, of his own love for his nephew, going and willingly rescuing him like our Lord Jesus did us. Listen, he'll rescue you today. Humble your heart. Look to Jesus, my friend.